This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we are going to talk about markets in everything. And in some ways, markets in everything are they exist whether we want them to or not, depending on how you define a market. Like every every interaction and exchange has costs and benefits. Uh, there are trade-offs involved in in every action you can take. But I don't mean markets in that really, really broad sense. I mean specifically the ability to buy and sell things. So are there limits to what we should be able to buy and sell? And specifically today, we're going to talk not so much about practical limits, but the moral question of whether it's just wrong to sell, uh, you know, your, your organs, for example, not the kind you play in a church, your, your kidneys, your, your liver, whatever it might be. Um, what should we consider just not acceptable to buy and sell, uh, if anything? So the guest today is James Stacy Taylor. He is uh, the author of a book on this topic called Steaks and Kidneys. Uh, great title, Steaks spelled uh, S-T-A-K-E-S. I love puns and wordplay. And the subtitle is Why Markets in Human Body Parts Are Morally Imperative. Uh, so I think you know which, which uh, stance Professor uh, Taylor is going to take. He's a philosopher at the College of New Jersey. James is also an adjunct faculty for Praxis. He does a lot of uh, stuff with our participants when they're, when they're diving into philosophy. And he is a truly top-notch lecturer, one of my favorite lecturers to listen to. So, James, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Isaac. It's good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I should add a few other biographical notes. One, you'll notice from the accent, uh, James is is uh, has a lovely accent, and I'm always tempted to say New Jersey from Dumb and Dumber, and he actually lives in New Jersey, but he's from Scotland. Um, and James, I looked you up on Rate My Professor your ratings are really high, except for in the difficulty. People think you're a little bit hard. Uh, your classes are a little bit hard. But you also have a chili pepper, which means that you are considered hot. So uh, congratulations. I, either that's a good thing, or it just means that I'm editing my own Rate My Professor page. <laughs> you, you've, that's, I bet there's a market for that. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm going to start by asking you a little bit about how you got into all this, but to, to set it up, one of the things that you're really good at from the lectures I've, I've been in, you used to lecture at seminars at IHS and places like that. Um, you're great at making people really uncomfortable. <laughs> and, and I think philosophers, especially those who are into ethics, they just love that. It's like, I don't know if they're just really dark people, but they love talking about, you know, would you pull the lever on the trolley and kill one person instead of five? And, and they just, they seem to revel in how uncomfortable everyone is. So how did you end up getting into philosophy and specifically ethics? Are you just like a really dark person who likes making people uncomfortable? No, I'm really sunny and lighthearted and like a little ray of sunshine in class. <laughs> and I think I got into ethics because the issues just fascinated me. They're really, really interesting, and they're actually really important and have practical implications. So the question of whether or not we should buy or sell human organs or plasma or blood actually matters. It's a question, but if we go one way, I think that we actually get to save lives. And if we go the other towards prohibition, continued prohibition in the case of organs, people actually die. So not only are these really theoretically interesting questions, they're actually questions which have bite outside the classroom. 
And I think not only is that important for public policy, but it's a really good way to get students to see the beauty of philosophy. Have you always been, I mean, when you were, I don't know, a, a teenager, were you always really interested in philosophy? Did you kind of know that the academic life was for you? Or was there some moment or some book that you came across that made you realize you wanted to devote your life to, to diving into these questions? Um, I think it was a combination of both. So I was always really interested in arguments and trying to use argumentative tactics to figure out what the right answer was. But obviously, in my high school, I'd never actually got exposed formally to philosophy at all. There weren't philosophy classes. So I didn't really know that philosophy existed. But I was really fortunate because I had a high school whose headmaster had the view that if you just allow bright, interested young people to have access to stuff, and to have access to reading materials that they might not otherwise come across, then they might get interested in things that otherwise aren't going to be covered in the school. So the sixth form library, the library for students between 18, 16 and 18, subscribe to philosophy journals, classics journals, sociology journals, a whole range of things which weren't actually covered in the classes. They were just there, and if you felt the need, you could browse them and look through them. And one afternoon I was looking through the philosophy section because I'd come across a couple of interesting articles and I found Judith Jardiff Thompson's article in defense of abortion. And I started reading it and her examples just hooked me immediately. And I realized that that was the sort of thing that I really wanted to do. You know, it's interesting that you, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but it's a really interesting observation that I don't think there's, that I've ever heard of in any middle school or high school, um, traditional setting, there's usually not philosophy is usually not a subject. Um, it's, you know, geography and math and history, which is really interesting because I, I kind of see philosophy as the mother discipline and the, the, the sort of, you know, the, what kind of questions, uh, should we ask and how to ask those questions? That's, that's a very, very interesting observation that it's not, it's not a, a subject you can sort of discover as its own field of study. Um, at least not in, in high school. Yeah, and I, I think that's a real, a real shame, because certainly philosophers at the university level, in order to secure majors, we really have to poach from other disciplines, because very few people come into the College of New Jersey declaring a philosophy major. Mm -hmm. So what we, and I suspect almost every other philosophy department has to do, is to teach an awful lot of lower division introductory courses, which I love doing and then really show students exactly how exciting and interesting philosophy is, and then get majors that way. I mean, there's there's one advantage to that, which is, I, I noticed when I was in college, those who majored in philosophy, on average, were so much more interested in their subject, in their major, than the typical communications or business or, you know, more generic, maybe liberal arts majors. Um, and I think, I think there's a, there, there's, there's an upside to it, I suppose, you know, everyone's going to tell you, oh, philosophy. So you want to be a Walmart greeter. Uh, so, so you have to kind of want it. There's some self-selection perhaps that improves the quality of the, um, be, because I get to, to build on an argument I've made elsewhere because the perceived value of the credential, the philosophy major as a credential is lower. It means that the people who are there have to place a higher value on the ideas themselves. Um, so maybe you get a, a improved quality. Yeah, I think that's right. And 
I think that we also get improved quality in that in order, if a student looks at the, say, GRE scores or the MCAT scores or the LSAT scores, in which philosophy majors tend to do extremely well and goes into philosophy that way, I think they tend to realize that this is actually really, really, really difficult. So we get self-selection in that people are interested in the subject and become philosophy majors that way, even mm -hmm. though the perceived value of the degree is lower. And students who actually do research and figure out exactly what the value of a degree really is, and then try to get into philosophy purely to use it instrumentally, tend to realize that the reason that GRE scores and LSAT scores <laughs> are high is because it's a really, really difficult subject. And they tend not to stay with philosophy if they're just trying to use it instrumentally. Those are those kids giving you that rating on Rate My Professor that says you're too hard, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably. So... Let's talk a little bit about your work. Um, I know you're working on a new book that that really talks about markets in absolutely everything, and I want to get to that. But I want to start with organs. Um, what led you to the the work and, and publishing the book uh, Steaks and Kidneys and this work on markets and organs more generally? You, what, any any particular thing that made you narrow in and focus on that question of ethics? Oh yes, and just like my stumbling on Judith Jardiff Thompson's article and getting into philosophy that way. My getting into the debate over organ sales was also completely serendipitous. So I was in graduate school in Bowling Green and looking through the library. And what I used to do is just go and browse the stacks and pull out any articles that seemed interesting. And I found an article in a smaller journal, the International Journal of Applied Philosophy, which argued that we should prohibit, continue to prohibit markets in kidneys out of respect for people's autonomy. And that struck me as really bizarre because normally we think of respecting autonomy as leading us to open up options rather than closing them down. So I started reading through the article expecting, as graduate students often do, that I could refute it really, really easily. And it turned out that it wasn't easy to refute. It was a really, really clever article. Essentially, the claim was that some options, like the author claimed, the option to sell a kidney, are going to be options that, if you pursue them, you're likely to close off a lot of options in your future. They're so-called constraining options. And he made the case that sale, selling a kidney was like this, so if you really cared about people's autonomy, we should prohibit kidney markets. So I wrote a paper responding to this, and it took me quite a while because it was a very nice argument. And I sent it off to the author, Paul Hughes, at the University of Michigan. And he was good enough to send me extensive comments on it. And then he encouraged me to get it into print. I got it into print, and my interest in organ markets was spiked hmm. from that instance. What was and, your what was your uh, your main response to his argument? Um, my main response was I to agree first that some options could be constraining options. So if you sell yourself into slavery, for example, that's going to limit your autonomy in the future. But I had a two-pronged response. Firstly, but maybe if we value autonomy in value person's exercise of their autonomy so that they can secure the type of life that they wish to live, we should recognize that some people might be willing to trade off their future autonomy for other goods. So... For example, if you're of a particular religious persuasion, you might want to enter a monastery and become under the direction of your, your abbot. You give up your autonomy in order to pursue a life 
of holiness. <coughs> so that was the first response. Maybe we can allow people to give up autonomy. My second response was to look at the empirical data and to see if it was actually true that it was necessarily the case that the sale of a kidney would undermine your future options. And it turns out that in black markets, that might well be the case, because obviously there's going to be systematic fraud, people won't get the medical attention that they're promised and so forth. But it wasn't obvious to me that this would actually occur in a legal market. And so I argued that if we genuinely were concerned with autonomy, especially if we were concerned with autonomy <coughs> to be used to secure a person's future well-being, then we should actually allow markets in kidneys rather than prohibit them. Hmm. There seems to be a lot of interesting things wrapped up in, in the argument that you responded to in terms of weighing realities against possibilities. I mean, so I could see this argument, hey, you, you, we don't want people to do things that will limit their future autonomy being extended in some in some pretty absurd ways, I suppose, right? I could I could put my house on the market today and maybe sell it for 300000 uh but you could say, well, wait a minute, the market in 10 years, you might be able to get 600,000 for that house. And that would give you a lot more options. Um, so, you know, we should maybe prohibit some of your present choices to give you more choices uh, in a future that may or may not be realized. I, I don't know. I can just see the, the weighing of something that's actually here in front of us today versus, you know, I may not, I may not even be alive. So I'm almost trying to protect the autonomy of a being that doesn't exist now and may never exist, a almost a hypothetical being in my future self. There's just a lot of interesting questions tied into there. Yeah, and what's really interesting is, as I started thinking more about it, it struck me that almost every choice that we make is going to start closing off other options for us. So if you get married, that closes off other dating options, or at least it really should close off other dating options. Some people, alas, it doesn't. If you <laughs> pursue a particular major in, in college, then that's going to close off some options for you, and so on. So I think that looking at, simply looking at the number of options that we have isn't particularly helpful. I think what we should really do is look at the quality of options that a person has where the quality of options is indexed to her particular interests and values. So you make a, a really strong claim in the, in the book, uh, Steaks and Kidneys. I mean, the subtitle is why it's a, it's a moral imperative. So it's not only that it's morally acceptable to be able to um, you know, buy and sell kidneys, but that it's actually moral imperative. Um, what's behind that, that really strong claim, and how do you, how do you defend that? Oh, um, there's two arguments behind that strong claim. And I actually don't think that it's a strong claim. I think it's a self-evident claim. I'm rather puzzled as to why people are opposed to markets in kidneys. Um, the first argument is that people who will be acquiring the kidneys, typically they won't be buying them themselves. Their insurance company will be buying them or Medicare or Medicaid will be purchasing them for them. But the people who will be acquiring kidneys need them to live. If you're going to be in the market for a replacement kidney, you're facing death and death fairly soon. So prohibiting a market in kidneys is actually stopping somebody who has two kidneys from saving the life of somebody who has none. I think that's pretty bad. I think that's actually morally appalling. And as a result, there is a moral imperative to remove this prohibition and enable this mutually beneficial exchange to go forward and somebody's life to be saved. 
So the first argument focuses on saving the lives of people who need kidneys. The second argument looks at the plight of people who would be selling kidneys. Typically, and I think this is agreed by almost everybody, people who sell their kidneys are typically going to be impoverished. You're unlikely to get many kidneys being offered for sale by wealthy middle class people in New Jersey, for example. Mm. So if you're really concerned about the plight of the poor, whether these are the global poor or the US poor, depending on if you have an international or a domestic market, you should actually allow them to realize what might be the only major asset that they have if they wish to do so. Um, to put this in really concrete terms, imagine this. Um, and you're in a lake waving, needing help, and I have a life belt. And I'm willing and so willing to sell you the life belt at a perfectly reasonable price, say $20, because there's a lot of other people on the shore who also have life belts. So I can't really exploit you, even if I was wicked enough to try to do so. You're willing to pay the $20, and that will save your life. I'm willing to sell you the life belt for $20, and that would make me much better off. Now somebody comes in from the government who's clearly here to help both of us and says, you can't make that exchange. Can maybe get a free life belt tossed to him by somebody, then that's all well and good. But if the only way that he can get a life belt and save his life is to pay somebody, that's just unacceptable. It turns out, for whatever reason, that there's not enough life belts to go around and you end up drowning. Mm. I think the person who stopped our exchange is partially responsible for your death. So I think that allowing exchanges of kidneys is actually morally imperative. You know, it's interesting. I mean, that that analogy, I think it's a powerful one. And I think the the actual market for kidneys, uh, what's happening is is an even is an even worse situation in some ways, because a life belt uh, one size more or less fits all in the market for kidneys. You've got to find a match, first of all. So just the the limiting the exchange to people who are willing to do it without being paid, which would usually mean someone that you know that's a relative or whatever, um, it immediately limits dramatically the pool from which you get to draw and makes finding a match that much harder. I mean, obviously, those who are related to you are more likely to, to be a match in most cases, but it's it's a it's a more complex market in that you, you, you really benefit from having a larger pool to draw from so that you can make those um, make those matches. That's absolutely right. And it gets the argument actually gets more powerful when you start to look at those considerations, because it's true. And this is something that the opponents of kidney sales point to. And they're absolutely right. But it's true that giving up a kidney is a major piece of surgery. And if you're engaged in manual labor, this can actually significantly affect your earning power, at least in the short and medium term future. So imagine that you're an impover- a relatively impoverished family. You do have access to medical care in the United States, and if a kidney is available, you can get a transplant. But there's no market. So you look around at your friends and relatives who are engaged in manual labor, and you do manage to acquire a kidney from one of them altruistically. That's going to place a significant burden upon them and their family if they're impoverished and engaged in manual labor. Compare that to somebody who needs a kidney who's middle class, and who also is lucky enough to get an altruistic donor, but does it from one of their relatives who's an accountant or a lawyer. The costs that are going to be imposed upon the latter donor 
are going to be much less than on the former donor. So I think that a very good argument in favour of allowing markets in kidneys, simply on the grounds of protecting poor donors and poor families, can also be made. So let's let's say that, you know, you snap your fingers and tomorrow uh, it is legal to buy and sell kidneys in the United States. What so we know we know the the good outcomes, the things you've talked about, more people getting kidneys, more people um, having their lives saved, many people of low income having something that they can, um, you know, a really valuable, you know, valuable asset that they can uh, gain income from, et cetera. What are the bad things that are going to happen? What are, what are some of the negative things? Are there going to be street gangs uh, clubbing you and, um, you know, cutting out one of your kidneys and going and selling it? What, you know, realistically, if we did have that market, what do you think would be the worst outcomes that people would say, yeah, that's icky, even if it's worth it overall? Right. Um, I think that just to address the street gangs, because people seem unusually worried about street gangs (laughs) stealing kidneys, uh, that simply won't happen. In the market for kidneys that we have today, This, of course, is a market with a price cap of zero on the good that we're acquiring. So the pool of donated kidneys. There's significant numbers of protocols and procedures that are in place to make sure that we know exactly where the kidney came from. And just think of it this way. If you have a kidney that some street gang is passing off to you at a low price into a hospital setting, almost no reputable hospital is going to take that kidney. So you're not going to have your street gang kidneys entering into the legitimate organ transplant market. So you might say, and people have said to me, well, what if there's an eccentric millionaire who's going to buy a kidney from a street gang to jump the waiting list? I think the answer to that is that would be have to be not an eccentric millionaire. That would have to be a crazy millionaire. <laughs> if you're actually able to buy kidneys, you will have really good standard normal medical insurance and medical care. You won't be looking to buy kidneys from street gangs. And then sometimes people say, well, what about poor people who don't have insurance? Won't they be buying kidneys from street gangs? And the answer is no, because they're poor. If you don't have access to any sort of medical insurance at all, you're certainly not going to be able to fund a kidney transplant out of pocket. So I think there's going to be absolutely no market whatsoever for illegally acquired street gang kidneys if the market is actually legal. If it's not legal, then those street gangs are going to flourish. And we see this in Pakistan, Moldova and India. So that's, that's a myth. But there will be bad consequences of allowing a market in kidneys. They won't be large scale. But some people are going to be made worse off, but would be better off if the market was not in place. So I can imagine that some people might be pressured by their family members into selling a kidney who are really opposed to doing this. So maybe your family is in debt and the hus- and it's a very patriarchal traditional family and the husband might pressure his spouse into selling her kidney to get them out of debt or to prevent foreclosure. And she really doesn't want this to go forward, but she's subject to significant pressure to do this. I can see those sort of things occurring in isolation, but I think that's not going to be peculiar to a market in kidneys. So we we can envisage precisely the same things occurring in markets for, say, antique cars. So the house is about to be foreclosed on. The husband has worked on his father's 
expensive Ford Mustang and has brought it back into concourse condition, and he just loves this car. And he gets a lot of pressure to sell it in order to prevent either foreclosure or to purchase a new car that the family can use. But we don't ban markets in antique cars, even though we realize that some people might be pressured into giving up a prized possession if they're allowed. So, so uh, I yeah, think, I think it's go ahead. Note that there's not going to be a market in kidneys won't make everybody better off. Some people are going to be made worse off, but those will be on relatively on the margins and the overall effects will be wonderful. So are you, um, you know, this, this kind of a look, we're saving a lot more lives than we're causing harm in any way. If this policy is enacted, does that make you a utilitarian? If someone says, well, look, I just think there are certain things that are just wrong, no matter what, um, are they going to, are they going to not, you know, are you not going to appeal to those people with your arguments? Are you making a utilitarian case? I, I think the beauty of kidney markets is you can make both a utilitarian case, which is very easy to make, and a deontological case. So if you're interested in, say, natural rights, and you believe that persons have a right to buy and sell their own possessions, then I think that you can make a very good natural rights-based case in favor of markets in kidneys. You can certainly make the argument, which I think is a powerful one, but if somebody is going to come along and tell you that you can't do something with your body, then the onus and the burden of proof is going to be on them to explain exactly why you cannot use your body as you choose. And I think that when we're looking at kidney sales, that's going to be a difficult argument to make from somebody who opposes them on deontological lines, because almost nobody opposes allowing people to donate their kidneys. So I can give up part of my body if I so choose to help somebody else. But that means that the opposition's got to be on not the giving up of a kidney, but the giving up of a kidney and receiving something in exchange. And it's not clear to me how such an argument will actually be persuasive. So I, I want to bring up one other argument on the, the kidneys thing. Um, and I, this is one that I, I find particularly uh, <laughs> unsatisfying and I'm not a, not a fan of it, but I hear it from time to time. And I actually hear it in a lot of other areas. In fact, this, this is probably the justification for um, almost all government action that people think will like stimulate the economy or something. But this is basically, hey, look, James, there are people right now working on being able to create kidneys in a lab, on 3D printing of kidneys. Um, this stuff is expensive, but it's promising. And if that happened, we could give kidneys to people without ever cutting them out of somebody else. That'd be a great situation. If you open up the market for kidneys, that basically means that they're so much more accessible and so much cheaper that all this research becomes, um, it, it, it gets slowed down because it, now it's not as urgent. And you're going to stall all the technological progress that could be made. If we keep the price of kidneys artificially high by basically keep them, keep them artificially scarce by not letting people uh, buy and sell them, that is an incentive for innovators and scientists to come up with, um, you know, synthetic organs. Right. I've, I've heard that argument too. And it's like you, it strikes me as really unsatisfactory. So I take it from, but the worry is that if there's a, plenty, a relatively plentiful supply of kidneys simply from sort of normal sources, people, then we're going to undermine the or undercut the motivation to innovate. And that, I think, is rather unfair to innovators. I, 
can't see anybody who's currently working on artificially created kidneys now suddenly stopping work simply because kidneys become more available. It strikes me that if you're able to produce a much cheaper product, a, a maybe even a comparable or even better product, sorry, if you're able to produce a product, an artificial kidney, that's cheaper and better than the current product on the market, you're going to be motivated to innovate to do that anyway, even if there are current products available. So it strikes me that that sort of argument could be used to prohibit or restrict markets in almost any good that we have on the grounds that there are people innovating to produce better products. So we should make the price artificially high to, st to spur them to greater heights. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, I, I think the, you know, the recognition there is that even if there's a market in it, uh, nobody like it's, it's not that fun, the whole procedure. And there's always going to be some people who, um, if you can make, even if it's much more expensive at first, if you can make a synthetic kidney and you can say, this is a better quality and you don't have to buy it from someone that you don't know or whatever, there's going to be some small market for that. There's an incentive to innovate, but, but there's also just the ethical question of, again, we're trading, a we're trading lives in the present that we know we could save right now for, we don't know, maybe in 10 years or 20 years, maybe, maybe you know, even if it was true that reducing the market for kidneys would uh, somehow speed up innovation by a few years, um, how many lives are lost in the meantime, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So even on utilitarian grounds, it's going to be a, a, relative, a pretty weak argument to, to continue prohibiting markets in kidneys. You know, one thing that, that I think I'm sure you bump into this all the time in your work Nowhere does the nirvana fallacy loom its ugly head probably more than in discussions like this about things that people feel icky about markets and kidneys. People will people will hold your your ideal world where it's legal to buy and sell your your organs. They'll hold it to a standard. They'll compare it to a world that's not possible and that doesn't exist. And so they'll say, well, you know, you'd have this going on and you'd have this. But the relevant question is compared to what's actually happening today is your proposal better or worse? And when you look at what's actually happening today, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, and this could be a transition to this, um, in, in adoption. So my wife and I adopted, our, our middle daughter is adopted, and you already have half of a market in adoption, right? Adoptive parents right. pay pretty large sums of money um, in order to adopt a child. So you've already got people paying for children, so to speak, uh, which makes people feel really icky. The only thing that happens is, governments and intermediary agencies and all these things that are legally required, they get all that money. Meanwhile, the mother who's carried this baby and endured all of the economic and physical hardship involved um, gets no compensation for it. And so, you you know, it's the only thing you're changing. So, so people kind of think, well, I don't like the idea of being able to buy a child. Well, you basically can do that today. The only difference is the, the mothers get nothing out of the deal, um, which is, it seems like a really bad incentive. So I think it's just so important to, to, point out that nirvana fallacy when you compare it to some ideal world where everyone's happy and, and no one ever suffers. Well, then, yes, uh, a market for organs doesn't look too great. But when you compare it to the, the world of the possible, it's a definite improvement. Oh, I, I agree. And sometimes people object to my arguments in favor of kidney markets by noting that, well, if you allowed a market in kidneys, some people might be motivated to sell a kidney and they might die during the operation. And if we continue to prohibit the market, then they'll continue to live. And the answer is, yes, I think that might actually occur. And that's going to be extremely unfortunate. 
But if we continue to prohibit a market in organs, we've got massive numbers of death now. So before I, I actually I do want to talk about adoption. I want to talk about some other uh, weirder areas of uh, of markets. But you reminded me of a question. I saw an interview with you where you talked about um, taking taking organs from uh, the dead. Yes. You favor this. Do you think that the dead have any rights or there are any ethical limits to what uh, can be done with a person's body once they're dead? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was way I, too short of an answer for a philosopher. I, I, I think that I have a I have a oddly perhaps a minority view on the view concerning the possibility of posthumous harms. So I don't think that persons who are now dead can be harmed or benefited by anything that occurs after their lives have ended. So I don't think that if we remove your organs after you're dead, we've actually harmed you in any way. Now, this doesn't mean that the state can therefore come in and simply conscript organs from persons who are now dead. But I think that it does show that if you die, your organs should become available for taking. Now, this doesn't mean that the government should do it. I think that it could mean that either the family does it or the hospital or hospice in which you die does it. If it's going to be the latter, I think I can see a situation whereby hospitals or hospices would start to compete in order to attract people from whom they could harvest organs. And they might even have fairly explicit agreements with the people who they're attracting, that if we provide you with a certain standard of care and don't charge you very much for it or give it to you free, then we get to harvest your organs post-mortem if they're suitable for transplant. Mm. So I think that the dead have absolutely no rights and they can't be harmed or benefited. But even with that observation in place, what I will see happening is the medical profession cutting deals with currently living people in order to secure access to their bodies post-mortem. That is a fascinating concept. You have this, uh, to make a bad pun, you have this dead asset, right? Right. You have this asset, which is the physical material of your body after you die. And once you die, it's no longer your asset. But today it is. It's something in the future that could be useful to others. And the ability to procure higher quality end-of-life care in exchange for that thing that you will no longer have use for. Um, that's a really fascinating idea, James. So, yeah. so and I think it would help it. It would help the people who are facing the end of their life. It'll help people who need the bodily materials that they currently have, and it'll help the hospitals. So you, do, so you don't think that like, let's say I write into my will, you know, I shall be, uh, <laughs> I shall be buried in a, you know, stainless steel, uh, casket that's impenetrable or whatever. And no one shall touch my remains. You don't think that once I'm dead, anyone is obligated to um, to stick to the terms that I set forth in that? Or what, I guess, you know, is there a way that I could say I have, let's say I have some religious objection to you taking my organ once I'm dead because I think that I'm going to be reincarnated or something uh, in my physical body or something to that effect. Do I, do you think I have any right or ability to, to, Pre preemptively prevent anyone from from doing that to my to my um, body after I die. I think you certainly have the right to try to do so, but I don't think that anybody owes you any obligation to respect your wishes once you're dead. 
Now, having said that, there is going to be a practical caveat because some people are going to be deeply concerned about what happens to their body or to their property after they die. And they might have a self-regarding reason for this. They think that if their body is somehow is not intact, then they won't ascend to heaven or be reincarnated. And they might have deep concerns over what happens to their physical possessions. Now, I think that those sort of concerns are fairly widespread among people. And if we simply said, we're just going to start ignoring wills and distribute property and essentially homestead anything that a dead person formerly owned, people will become really, really upset. So given that, I think that we could have a reasonable justification for continuing to respect wills and continuing to respect person's wishes concerning the disposal of their bodies after they're dead, not because the dead person has any claim on us, but because this is going to be a way to actually further the interests of persons who are living, even though I think that those interests are actually not going to be rationally justified. This is one of those great examples of where sometimes you can get so lost in a philosophical problem that you kind of forget, regardless of the answer you arrive at in terms of whether it's morally right or wrong, that either way, the world is probably going to do one thing anyway. So, so, so even if we arrived at the conclusion that I have no moral obligation to respect uh, the wishes or the, the body or property of a dead person, in practical terms, pretty much everybody wants to, seems to want to live in a world where we do um, and where you, you don't have this immediate homesteading. And so for, a, for practical reasons, that's kind of the, the order, the institutions around death that have emerged, whether or not we're doing it for, for moral reasons or reasons of, you know, this, this natural right that this dead person has, um, it's kind of practically what's emerged. And I think it's probably what's going to stick around regardless of the answer we come to on the moral level. Now, now, if people just read more of my work on the metaphysics of death and came to realize how rationally unjustified their views were, then maybe we'll see a change. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen very soon. So uh, when you die, what do you have any hopes? Like you want your body to go to research or something? Or, or do you just you think the idea of having any desires at all for what happens with your body is just useless? Um, I actually would like my body to be cut into small parts and then mailed in leaky parcels to enemies. <laughs> this, this is why, uh, you know, this is, this is why you're so good at making people feel uncomfortable because no one ever quite knows if you're joking. It's great. <laughs> so I want to talk about a couple of other markets that make people feel icky. Um, I mentioned adoption. Let's talk about that. Is this something that is a topic you've looked into or done any work on? I've done a little bit of work on it and the work I've done focuses on not really markets in children, although that's a sort of natural way of describing it, but markets in parental rights. So I see, again, no reason to prohibit persons from acquiring the right to raise other people's children in accordance with their own particular values. So essentially what I'm talking about is I think that it's perfectly legitimate for people to buy children, by which, of course, I mean buy parental rights and raise them as their own, especially since the people who are likely to be expending significant sums of money to do this are likely to be people who really want those children and really want to look after them. So uh, I'm not I'm not going to take it down the sort of the common road, the, the road of, well, isn't this terrible? Isn't this icky? We shouldn't have money involved in this. Because I think, again, as I said before, there's there's markets 
for this regardless. Um, they're, they're just, you know, less, uh, efficient and I think less humane if you don't have them be actually open, open free markets. But what about the question, this idea of, of parental rights, how far does that extend? Because if, if you can have the right to parent, uh, which might imply some kind of having some kind of control over a child, um, is that child basically in the same position as a slave would be? And is there some age at which, you know, no matter how much a parent says, I want to sell this kid and I can do it because I'm physically stronger than they are. Um, is there a point at which that's, that's not valid because this child is also an autonomous being? Like if I said, Hey, I'm going to sell you James, you'd say, well, you don't own me in the first place, but if you were my child, would I be able to do that? Where, what's the, the relationship between children and parents in terms of, um, ownership and what autonomy do children have? Right. I think that children have a limited amount of autonomy simply because they're children. So they're not able to make as particularly good decisions. Their value sets might not be particularly wide or particularly stable, but they do have some minimum amount of autonomy. But I think a more interesting question is the effects on the adult child or young adult child of being treated in certain ways. So we have pretty good empirical evidence that certain ways of treating children make them flourish and certain ways of treating children tend not to be particularly good for them and can harm them later in life. So insofar as we have a moral prescription against harming people, I think that we should restrict parental rights to those rights over children but aren't going to bring about harm to them in later life. So the example was you really enjoy locking children in dark cupboards for long periods of time because you like the whimpering sounds that they make after the first few hours. And it, we've got pretty good evidence that that's going to cause psychological harm to the children both then and later in life. Since you are not morally allowed to harm other individuals, then the scope of your parental rights would be restricted so that you can't actually treat children in such a way that inflicts psychological harm upon them. So it's almost more, it's almost more like a responsibility to the child um, that we're talking about rather than rights to like, hey, I can do whatever I want to uh, because I've got these rights. It's more like I can do whatever I want to as long as it's not doing damage. Um, so in other words, I can feed and clothe and love and, <laughs> and care for um, this child, but, but nothing that would do harm. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously some persons might be, most parents are going to be very interested in instilling their own particular values into the children, their children or their adopted children. And I think that's perfectly acceptable. So if you want to bring your child up in the religious tradition in which you were raised, Go for it. That seems wonderful. Do you imagine a world where there's like exchanges? I can go on, you know, eBaby and, uh, and you know, oh, here's a child. This one costs uh, $20,000 and uh, it's from Ohio. Um, you know, I mean, what do you imagine this looking like in practical terms? And maybe that's an unfair question to imagine a, what the market would do. But do you have any any thoughts on that? Sure. And we've got something similar to this with respect to markets in gametes. So although I believe it's not technically legal to buy and sell over women's over, I it's pretty marketing over 
for them. And as I like to point out to my students at the College of New Jersey, when the college newspaper runs advertisements recruiting women to donate their over for a fee, the fees offered for their time and effort are always about three or $4,000 less than the fees offered for the same time and effort of women at Princeton, which is about six miles away. So it's pretty clear that there's differential pricing for over from people with different educational backgrounds. And I can see that happening for children in a market for parental rights. In, in what ways, yeah, as we talked about with kidneys, in what ways does this make, would this make some negative outcomes? And why do you think the positive outcomes would outweigh that? I think it might have a negative outcome in that given that you have differential pricing for children of different backgrounds, people might see this as reflecting unfortunate moral evaluations of different types of people. And that I think is a real and justified worry that people might have. This is somehow going to solidify morally unjustified attitudes. But I think that the response to that will be we could we see that people tend not to do that because we have insurance markets and life insurance markets and payouts will deter in life insurance markets will differ according to diff, what particular occupation you're in and yet we don't think that morally speaking people who earn more are somehow morally more valuable than people who earn less so i think that the perfectly natural worry about solidifying unpleasant moral attitudes might not actually turn out in practice. And even if it did, and I think that that would be a very bad thing indeed, but even if it did, I think that the advantage of enabling people to gain quicker access to children that they want to parent via versus the current adoption system, which I understand is pretty complex and very bureaucratic, Yes. <laughs> would, would be much better. This is going to mean that children get access to or uh, get access to loving households much quicker than the current situation. And parents don't have to go through the stress and worry and I think unnecessary expense in some cases of acquiring the child they really want to cherish and love. Yeah, and, and yeah, I've always been moved by the the plight of the birth mother who decides, um, you know, for whatever reasons, typically moral reasons, that they want to, they have a, a child that they don't feel like they can raise in the way that they want, and they don't want to abort the child, they want to carry it to term. Um, they're taking such a huge cost, it's a huge physical, emotional, financial cost um, to, to do that, and they really, they gain the knowledge that this child is in a home that they feel will be, will be better, but that's it. All the cost is put on that birth mother. And for particularly for those who are, who are, um, opposed to abortion or at least want to limit abortion, the idea that the options are, uh, a woman can pay to terminate a pregnancy or bear all the cost of carrying it to term and get no compensation at all. Um, that's a pretty that's a pretty harsh environment for those birth mothers today. It it is, and as I as I understand it, but that's going to mean that the persons who get a pregnancy that they didn't plan or maybe didn't want in any way and are not going to abort but are going to carry it to term, they're doing something which I consider to be really morally admirable. And not having a market in parental rights where they can be compensated is actually putting a significant barrier to somebody 
doing something that I would consider is the morally right thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I want to touch on a few other topics briefly before we wrap up. One that I know you're you're working on a new book about markets in a, in a great many things, and I wanted to ask if one of the things covered there, because I've heard some other philosophers talk about this recently, is votes. Uh, so we live in a, a democratic system, and everybody's you know of who's of voting age um, has you know one vote that they can use in elections. And I've heard people talk about markets for votes where you can sell those to the highest bidder. Is this something that uh, is part of your work? And what, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I think we should have markets in votes. And I think that this is going to be, again, a mutually beneficial exchange between vote buyers and vote sellers. Now, the obvious worry that people have is, well, isn't this just going to lead to a situation where the rich can dominate every election? They'll just buy up everybody's votes and things would look good for the rich and very bad indeed for the poor. And I think that there's two responses to that. One is just a practical response. But if you legalize a vote market in the United States, you have two major political parties which seem to be equally well capitalized or at least have the ability to become equally well capitalized. So if you believe that one party represents the interests of a particular section of the population better than the other party, then it seems that no party is going to be able to economically dominate the polls. You'll just have a situation where both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, can purchase the votes that they desire. But even if it turns out that you have one party which is significantly more financially wealthy than the other party, you could address this simply by regulating a market in votes. You could allow, for example, only a certain number of votes to be purchased, where the number of votes to be, that you allow to be purchased could be indexed to the wealth of the least well-capitalized major party. You know, I, I'm not one who, I don't like putting the burden of proof on alternatives to the status quo. Uh, I tend to like uh, wanting to ask equal questions and, and making the status quo sort of justify itself. But in the interest of, of kind of taking the position that most people will probably take, I want to, I want to ask you, okay, so everybody's pretty comfortable whether they should be or not and whether they've actually asked good questions of it and said why is our system of democracy set up the way it is could it be better most people are comfortable with it so you've got to come to the table if you want me to to buy into a system of of buying and selling votes you've got to come to the table with some argument for why this is going to be an improvement over the current system or what are the benefits to it what do you think is the main improvement or the main benefit of a market for votes I think that the main benefit would actually be pretty minor. Um, it can be, it can get you $5 for your vote every four years in an election cycle if we just restrict it to presidential elections. I'm not convinced that there's any great benefit to having the market in votes via the current system where you just cast your vote for free. It might have an expressive benefit in that it will show fairly clearly that people's votes are being purchased, just as they are now when you have special interest groups offering political support to politicians for pork. But other than that, I don't think there'll be any great benefit to a market in votes. You know, I could see some interesting, interesting potential things spinning out of this, because one of the major, I think one of the major problems with democracy that makes it such a horrible mechanism for collective, <laughs> for collective decision making and solving collective action problems is that voting is 
is free. So, you know, right. you can, you, it's, it's a, it's a way to indulge in your irrational biases. Oh, that guy says stuff that makes me feel good. I'll vote for him. Whereas in practice, the policies, the politician implements, you wouldn't actually appreciate, right? You say you want to, to protect American jobs, but you actually shop at Walmart and buy imported goods when your own money is on the line, right? So I could potentially see now you're, you're connecting your stated preference and your reveal preference a little bit more if there was a way to verify the, the purchaser who they were going to use your vote on behalf of. You might say, oh, look, I hate politician X. Nothing could get me to vote for them. Well, now we can find out if you really mean that. Like, okay, what if I pay you, you know, you can get five bucks for selling your vote to somebody who supports politician Y, but somebody will give you a hundred bucks to sell your vote that supports politician X. And, you know, you know that your vote isn't going to make that much of a statistical difference anyway. It would kind of put a weight to people's uh, words a little bit more. It could, could, could be interesting in some ways, perhaps. Right. I, I think I might draw a, a different conclusion from those similar sets, from the same sets of facts. You might say, well, I'll never vote for politician X. And yet, if somebody offers you 50 cents more for your vote for politician X, then do the supporters of politician Y, you still sell, you sell happily to X. But you might do that because you realize that your vote is really statistically insignificant. And I think that might be useful in showing people, you might think that you have the power of the polls of making decisions and affecting the outcome of the election, but you really don't. Mm. And that might be helpful when people see that major political parties are only going to pay slightly above transaction costs for any individual vote. It might be helpful showing people just how politically powerless they are. And as a result of that, maybe discouraging people from being that interested in government on the grounds that we can always come out the next time. You know, that's, yep. that's, that's one of my favorite things about this topic in general, as I alluded to at the outset, that in, in some ways, we already have markets and everything. Economics, in the broad sense, not just dollars and cents, is a part of every decision we make. And when I enter into a conversation, I say certain words because I know that there's cost and benefits. There's, there's markets going on, and in some ways, this being more open about it kind of reveals the reality of the situation because people often even use the terminology. They say that votes are bought and sold and that people are, you know, buying an election. And when it it's kind of possible now, it's just done in a way that obscures some of the underlying realities and makes it easier for people to believe things that maybe aren't true. And, and it kind of that transparency maybe reveals some of the underlying incentives and mechanisms um, in a way that, that I find pretty, pretty interesting. Um, OK, James, I want to ask you one final question. This was I was asking uh, my good friend, Zach Slayback, who's a, a big fan of your work and an interesting, um, very philosophical guy himself. I said, I'm going to be interviewing James. We're going to talk about markets and everything. And he said, hey, I had this weird idea. I want to know his thoughts on markets in your identity. So, so not, not slavery or indentured servitude, where I'm actually selling me my physical, you know, you can tell me what kind of work to do for the next X number of years. But now we all have these identities. We have the, the, the right identities can be stolen. So in some sense, they are a form of, of property that's of value. People can steal your uh, credit rating and social security number and your criminal background. And, and those are valuable things. What if I could sell my own identity? What if I said, I don't have a credit rating sufficient to buy a house, so I'm going to go on the market and buy someone else's identity and use it? Um, maybe that's not even possible, but I thought it was a, a rather interesting question, and I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Yeah, that is interesting. I haven't 
I haven't given much thought to that, but my suspicion is that if such a market did was allowed and actually emerged, then presumably mortgage companies or other agencies who would be in the business of lending money are going to be asking for verification that the person they're lending to is continuous with the person whose credit rating that they're looking at. And if that verification isn't going to be forthcoming, then they're going to be discounting the credit rating considerably because they really don't know who they're dealing with. And in fact, if the verification isn't forthcoming, that might send a clear signal that somebody's purchased a good credit rating because they have a bad credit rating. So I have no, in principle, objections to those sort of markets. My suspicion is that they might not be particularly widespread because essentially what you're talking about are markets in signaling mechanisms where the persons receiving the signals are going to realize that there'll be distortion in some signals and would want to receive verification that the distortion is absent. Yeah, absolutely. The, the value of that mechanism is is your ability or the degree to which you can trust that the signal actually is correctly attached to the right individual. Um, and if and the, the extent to which that's harder to believe, that signal is discounted. So, So the final question then is, since I know you have no ethical problems with it, did you purchase that chili pepper from another professor uh, on your Rate My Professor profile? Are you? Did you buy somebody else's hotness rating? Um, I, I did not. No. <laughs> but I've, I've no objection to that. I, I don't think that buying somebody else's hotness rating would really work very well, because as soon as class, students turned up in class, they'd realize clearly either somebody has really weird preferences or this has been purchased. <laughs> James, thank you so much for coming on. Do you, you have a new book coming out, is that correct? Um, I'm currently working on a new book called Toxic Trade in Defense of Universal Commodification. Toxic Trade. All right, we will be on the lookout for that. Um, is there a, any particular website uh, that people should go to if they want to find out more about you and your work? Um, I guess you could just Google me and go to the College of New Jersey's website where I'm featured there, and I think I'm featured there holding the checking. <laughs> Professor, philosopher, uh, author, fascinating guy, James Stacy Taylor. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, Isaac. It was a great pleasure.